This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this is a really special episode. We're going to do something a little different. To celebrate the one-year anniversary of the show, we're doing a listener episode as a thank you to all of you guys for your support over the last year. It has been a wild and amazing ride, and it means so much to me that you are listening and enjoying this show. Thank you also to everyone who voted for this. We have a great adventure in store, a 500-kilometer, 300-mile walk through the Balkans, one of Europe's little-known and often misunderstood regions. It's a great story. It's a deep story. And most importantly, it's a story about stepping outside the predictable path of life and doing something mad, something exciting, something that could change your life, something that you too could do. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is Adam Selden. He's a history teacher from London. And let me just say, in case his kids are listening, oh my God, you are so lucky to have Adam as your teacher. He's passionate about history, he's articulate, and he's absolutely nothing like the history teacher I had at school. You guys are very, very lucky. Adam's written a short book about this journey, which he is self-publishing on Kindle. I really enjoyed it. It's a quick read, but it's filled with really detailed history and observations, and it's peppered with some of the coolest and most inspiring quotes I've ever heard, many of which I'm going to be sharing at the end of this episode. You can pick that up on Kindle. It's called A Balkan Journey, a 500-kilometer walk through Europe's forgotten region. And you can also connect with him on Twitter at Adam J. Selden and Instagram at adam.j.selden. Selden. So we're just about to get started. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help spread the word. Tell a friend. And if you can, head over to your favorite podcast app and hit that five-star review. It makes a huge difference to the show and only takes a couple of minutes. You don't even have to write anything. Just hit those stars as many as possible. And you'll be helping to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, adventure, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. The social media is Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can sign up for the newsletter and book trips inspired by the show. Just drop me a line. I've set up an adventure travel agency to help you plan and book your next adventure. So get in touch. Let's make that dream trip happen. But don't worry about that right now, because we are about to set off on a 500-kilometer, 300-mile trek through an absolutely fascinating, untouched, and rarely visited part of Europe. But before we do, and this in many ways is really what this story is all about, let's find out what led Adam to break out of that mold of modern life and take on this big challenge, this big adventure that would dare him to be truly alive. I had a great upbringing great parents, went to some great schools, had some some wonderful teachers, but um, also I kind of felt like it was almost a bit too easy. I wanted a challenge like nothing that I'd experienced before, where I was truly independent, something that was directed by me and where I would be solely responsible. You know, there was this idea that 
I would be a stronger, better person. I'd be more equipped, I suppose, to face life's challenges. There's only sort of so much you can learn from others and from teachers and from books. I suppose so I was looking at education in a quite a broad sense of the word in terms of education through experience. Uh, I wanted a different dimension of education, I suppose. I'd been given a lot in my life on a platter, whereas I wanted to find something for myself. There was something I wanted to learn about the, the wider world. And then there was also something about learning about myself and kind of getting to the depths of what I'm capable of. It's a brave thing to admit and one that, if we're honest, many of us can probably relate to. In the West, we're educated with books and qualifications and degrees. We're educated to prepare for our careers and our productivity in society. But we're not actually educated with real challenge, with real life, with real experience. And that does perhaps leave something missing. In the book, he talks about being smothered by his upbringing, too comfortable, too much handed on a plate. And it is a brave thing to acknowledge that and break out of that and seek that challenge, that real life, that real experience for yourself. Because in doing that, you may also just find out something hidden in yourself too. There's a word for that, an ancient word that Adam discovered. And that word becomes the central part of his journey, his mission for this 300-mile trek over the mountains of Eastern Europe. What he was embarking on is called an agoge. It was something that happened in Sparta, um, in ancient Greece, where it's this idea that to become a fully Spartan man, you need to exist in the wild for a certain period of time and sort of achieve certain things. I'd done this sort of quite highbrow reading about it. And I also remember, it's like, oh, isn't that in the movie 300? Sorry, I just had to get that out of the way. If you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, and like ridiculously ripped men with airbrushed abs carving each other to pieces, then you'll probably be screaming that soon too. But the agoge is actually an amazing concept and it has a long tradition in many cultures around the world. The men of Vanuatu Island in the South Pacific take part in something called land diving. Two words that should never go together, frankly, and which is as dangerous as it sounds. The Hammer tribe in Ethiopia jump cows and the poor old Sateri Wawi tribe in the Brazilian Amazon. In order to become a man, they have to stick their hand in a specially made glove filled with bullet ants and not move a muscle or even even utter a scream of any kind for 10 minutes. Let's just say their sting is so bad that if I lived there, I would happily stay a boy forever. So the Spartans actually had it pretty easy in that sense. But rather than the bravery and endurance that those other examples sought to prove, what inspired Adam was not about showing others how strong and tough he is. It was about learning about himself what he was capable of, learning all those things that his formal education missed out. It had like a, a tradition to it, a sort of a cultural weight behind it from distinctly pre-modern, non-contemporary cultures. And I thought, well, you know, could you, is there still space in this contemporary world of ours to do something which is in some way similar? The experience was for myself in the sense that I wasn't, it wasn't really for anyone else. I wasn't really trying to impress anyone else. I didn't, you know, I deliberately didn't, tell many people about it or or blog updates or post photos on social media. It's about me, I suppose. Whilst also in that process of it being about me, I also wanted to find out about others and also, I suppose, in, in some ways, contribute by 
perhaps motivating other people to do something similar and also casting a bit of a different angle on this region of the world, the Balkans, that perhaps has an unfairly negative reputation. It does. For whatever reason, the Balkans, which, just to put it on a map, basically is the southeastern part of Europe as it drops down between the Adriatic and the Black Sea. It's had, through history, and to some extent continuing to this day, somewhat of a racist stereotype, a portrayal of the people there as criminals and backwards and not really deserving of the high culture moniker of Europe, which is nonsense. It was also the epicenter of the Bosnian War between 1992 and 95, following the collapse of the former Yugoslavia, which saw the genocide of thousands of Bosnian Muslims and Croatians by the Bosnian Serb army, and tens of thousands more killed, many of them civilians, in the bitter fighting that followed. So the agoge that Adam was attempting was, in part for him, but it was also a challenge to the preconceptions of this storied and bitterly misunderstood part of the world. The Balkans has slipped out the headlines after the wars two decades ago. I wanted to you know, shed a light on it, find out a bit more about it and how fair the perception was. I looked into it a bit more and there's quite a long history of disparaging the Balkans. Karl Marx described Balkan people as, as ethnic trash. And I suppose I also had, I also wanted to push back about this, the arbitrary nature of where we often go. It's often, it's actually not a very firm basis for it. You know, it's, it's a first-hand account of, of a friend who went there who was probably influenced by a decision long, long before by some people in like a boardroom saying, you know, let's, let's invest some money here and let's get some great marketing for this place here. And, you know, travel is precious. Like, if you tot up how often we actually get to go travelling in our lives, it's actually not much, you know, we, most of the time we are uh, on the grind, we, we are working. So... It was one thing to find out about a region, show a light about a region for its its qualities um, that I could find out about rather than be told about. It's interesting, isn't it? And as a travel writer, I know this all too well. The places we visit, like the things we buy, are dictated often unconsciously by the marketing budgets and clever catchphrases that those destinations come up with. They're selling it to us. And the ones with the loudest voice are the ones with the most money. And the ones with the most money, more often than not, are the ones with the most visitors. So it does become this kind of vicious circle. But travel is precious. We do work too hard and don't explore enough. So the choices we make shouldn't necessarily be dictated by the loudest voice, but by the voice that connects with us the best, that fascinates us. That even if no one else is going there, and maybe especially if no one else is going there, we just can't wait to explore. And that was part of Adam's agoge too. And it's just about to start. So he began in Bosnia, went south into Montenegro and Albania, east into Kosovo, Macedonia and Bulgaria, and then south to Greece, where the whole concept of the agoge began more than 2,000 years ago. And I should say, although he did do the walk, those 300 miles, it wasn't a continuous line. To do that would have meant many more miles, most of which would have been on boring old roads. So he broke it up into segments which took in the most spectacular parts, the mountains, the national parks. And then he just hitchhiked and got public transport between the rest. But first up was Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, where some of the worst fighting in that brutal civil war took place. It's a really wonderful city. It's so much history there, there's amazing museums. It's quite a tragic city in that it's got the scars of, of war. It's the site of the longest siege in modern history, uh, the, the siege that was carried out by the Bosnian Serbs in the, in the war. 
And you really get the sense that the country isn't fully so reconciled itself to its past. You know, with the genocide, for example, you have Bosnian Serbs denying it happened. There are sort of statues going up to those who've been prosecuted for their role in the genocide. So you definitely feel it. It feels very, very raw. But also there's people who are so proud of their country and they want to show you a great time. They want to push back against that negative perception. So it's full of history. It's also it's an interesting mix as well of, sort of East and West. You have the Ottoman influence, you've got the bazaars, and then you've got the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire is also there. So it's, it's a great mixture. It's a real sort of melting pot of history, um, of peoples. Before the war, Sarajevo had a wonderfully rich history. It was founded by the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century, one of the mightiest and longest-lasting dynasties in the world, founded by the ancient Turks. And then at the end of the 19th century, it was annexed to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, another powerhouse in world history. The Archduke of France, Ferdinand, was assassinated here in 1914, starting the First World War. So it is a wonderfully rich city, but it is also, as Adam was about to find out, still marred by those scars of war. And that dichotomy between a proud country, a proud people, but also the ghosts of that sadness, that violence that was committed here, would be something that he would encounter throughout the trip. But now time for the walking to begin. And he started on a relatively new long-distance hiking trail called the Via Dinarica, which launched in 2010 and is still being developed. And it crosses all the way from Slovenia to Albania. 1,200 beautiful miles. But the sexiest section, as the official Via Dinarica website calls it, passes through Bosnia. So how could he resist? There was just one problem. The the area that we were kind of walking in was also uh, where lots of fighting had taken place uh, in the war in the 90s. And it was, the region was known for its unexploded mines. But, you know, we've been told as long as we stick to the the path, it'll be fine because there's no mines on the path. We were just kind of going up on quite a steep incline and we just stopped seeing either pathway markers or mine signs uh, and we were just stuck. But it, it was sketchy and actually that we decided to not press on and just come back off the hill and we just camped out in a stranger's garden. They weren't in. There was a really, really scary dog actually. We'd been there like kind of two and a half hours previously and the dog had gone. We're so paranoid though while I was camping there. What if the dog comes back? Because uh, it chased us before and kind of hit it away. Wait a second. Great start. Day one on the trail, you get chased by a rabid dog, walk into a minefield, forced to retreat and camp in the back garden of that same dog owner's house because it's the only place you could guarantee there weren't any mines. And that owner wasn't even in. But they did figure it out. They got past that bit. And then for a little while, at least, things started to get better. And I should mention also that Adam basically did this entire walk on his own. That was an important part of it to him. But for the first few days in Sarajevo and here on the trail, a friend joined him. But after that mine incident, Adam was on his own. And for someone that had never really done much long distance hiking, let alone solo, let alone somewhere where it was difficult to navigate, it was beautiful but it was also challenging. The agoge was on. I was walking through a national park called Sedeska National Park towards the south, quite near the border with Montenegro. There were friendly people. Some, some villager gave me a walking stick. That was actually ideal, and I kept it for the rest of the journey. In this village of Lukomir, an amazing village, it's a medieval village. It kind of has these medieval ways of life, no electricity, uh, no running water. You know, people got a house into their home and gave us pastries. The scenery was was beautiful. It was uh, it was very untouched. It was sort of 
It was verdant green forest, it was tall, it was valleys. I kind of knew where I was going. I had I'd pre-booked a hut for that evening in the, with the National Park Authority. You know, I was, I was, I was sort of doing all right. I was going through some beautiful primeval forest. But then I sort of spotted the first bit of snow. You know, it fairly quickly dawned on me that this walking through this park was really going to be really, really tough because, you know, in my complete amateurism, I hadn't appreciated that the standard trekking season is in that part of the world, it's sort of June, and you know, it was not June, it was sort of late spring. I hit snow and was just walking on snow for a very long time. There was no, I couldn't reach really the trail. Um, I, I kept on sort of falling because the snow was quite, it wasn't, it hadn't been hardened. I kept on kind of like falling down every sort of five, ten minutes. It was incredibly jarring. And it's confusing as well. Like, <laughs> so I was um, a few hours into the day, I sort of saw a knoll. I was like, that kind of looks, that looks familiar. I realised I'd been there two hours previously. I, I'd walked in full circle and it was just this rush of frustration and, you know, what am I doing? I'm already foolhardy enough doing this whole venture. You know, there was no no space for such incompetence. But I sort of, so I, was, I sort of had the view of, you know, keep on going. You know, this is really difficult, um, but I'll, I'll get to the heart this evening. I found myself, you know, going at quite a steep part of the park, going towards one of the highest points of the park, and to avoid going on snow that was had proved itself to be quite slippy. Um, so I was doing quite wide traverses up the slope to try and keep on the grass. Then I basically found myself um, on a very, a very steep part of the slope, like very, very steep, it going down 300 metres of steepness, and at the bottom were sort of rocks. And I became completely aware that be really really careful here no one knew that i was i was here i didn't have any phone signal i didn't have any backup if things went wrong then it was up to me to solve it but if things went really wrong i wouldn't be able to solve it by myself so i was just that kind of that kind of thought started coming in and i just went very 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 slowly you know a straight foot went and then i just started going that i just fell and because i was in such a steep part of this hill i just started picking up pace picking up pace picking up pace and I sort of used that that walking stick that I'd been given by the Bosnian villager as like as a sort of like a sort of pickaxe, and I was just I was hitting it into the ground. And luckily, I was able to to stop myself, and I crawled off it and sort of lay on my back and felt very sick, thinking, "What the hell am I doing?" And the thing that saved him, the thing that stopped him tumbling hundreds of feet to the rocks below was the walking stick that that stranger from a village that he passed through just randomly gave him out of the blue. Sometimes the universe just has your back. And then sometimes it doesn't. Because after the fall, what kept him going on that long slog up the mountain, snow coming in, was the thought of this mountain hut where he was planning to stay that night. He had booked it through the national park because there were bears in the area and they didn't advise wild camping. So he had a treat in store, he thought. He imagined a little stove and a wood fire, a hearth to cook some warm food in, maybe a bed. But it was shut. So his luck continued. He had to camp outside in the snow with the bears. Thanks for the walking state universe, but come on. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on earth. 
And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I managed to get out of um, get out of Bosnia and these these three lovely Croatians actually sort of drove me to Montenegro. It's a really beautiful country. It's like 25 times smaller than the UK, but it's got an amazing range of climates, great coast, and some amazing mountains. Um, and I kind of went into uh, I went into Albania. I wanted to go over the accursed mountains in the north, over into Kosovo. So I wasn't sure whether how to approach it. A Montenegrin who claimed that he knew quite about hiking was sort of, I, I mentioned to him passing, I think one of the Accursed Mountains, and he sort of paused and he just said, he looked at me very directly and said, you must not go to the Accursed Mountains alone. You sprain your ankle, you die. That name, the Accursed Mountains, it has sort of an appealing aura, a menace to them. But, you know, they're really incredible mountains. They're sort of, they really jut out from the ground. And it, it was an incredible range of, of colours. The grey, grey at the base of the mountains, and green and the green going into into red, uh, and then and snow at the top. They're really, really precious. And so is, the, so is the way of life there, which is also quite traditional as well. The Accursed Mountains. Speaking of boardrooms and brochures and the like, they might want to think about renaming that. It sounds like somewhere Dracula would live. But actually, as Adam says, that couldn't be further from the truth. He was following the peak of the Balkans Trail at this point, another fairly new long-distance trek that flows over Old Shepherd Pass through the high alpine mountains of Albania, Kosovo, and Montenegro for 120 gorgeous miles. And in terms of that unfair reputation that the people of the Balkans received, the Albanians maybe had it worst of all. He quotes the British critic A.A. Gill's description of them as the Asda of mayhem. American friends, you could just stick in Walmart of mayhem in its place and you'll get the same impression. Funny, yes, perhaps, but also untrue. Perhaps some of that reputation comes from the fact that it was pretty much locked away from the rest of the world and under strict communist rule from the end of the Second World War all the way to 1985, a North Korean-style dictatorship, he writes, 50 miles from the Italian border. Hard to believe. And yet, 
This beautiful country with tiny stone villages dotted through one of the last truly untouched wildernesses in Europe, a country that still lives under the shadow of that oppression and poverty, is still struggling through it today, was perhaps the friendliest and most welcome of the entire trip. The Albanians were so friendly uh, and warm. And, you know, they walk in the Cursor Mountains, you know, in between towns, and they, you know, they stop and be like, who are you? How come you're here? So great to have you. Just an incredibly beautiful country. You know, it's also got its mountains, it's got a great coastline. It's shackled by a past that people don't really care to know or find out about. I went into Kosovo, which is, you know, a lovely, it's a lovely country, it's landlocked. It's a country which, you know, which says it's, it's an independent country, but also it's not really recognised by most countries as an independent country. It's got a very fraught relationship with Serbia, which is much bigger neighbour. And they had a quite recent uh, war there in the in 1999, which Serbia tried to sort of essentially annex it back to be, be on Serbian rule. And NATO, American, British um, bombers helped stop the fighting and stop the Serbian takeover. It's a really interesting culture and people, and you also, kind of in Bosnia, you really saw the scars of war as well. The Kosovo actually walked really quite a long distance over these quite a few days over the Saar, Saar Mountains towards the Macedonian border. I had lots of lovely interactions. They were like, why are you here? And they were, they were curious to find out. And I actually ended up staying in the garden of, of, of one of the guys' homes, which was, which was lovely. But it was funny because they were lovely, but also, you know, I told them I'd come from this town and that and that town was sort of Kosovan Albanian and these guys were Kosovan Serb and they were like, ooh, you know, those people aren't, aren't good people and it was just crazy how you could have such hostility um, between two peoples. It was sad. I kept them walking there for a few days and, you know, had nice interactions with, with locals and but, uh, <laughs> I was actually in one of these one of these villages, some person just started just filming me. And they just grabbed their camera and just started walking along with me and filming me. Who is this weirdo in our village with a big rucksack? And I wanted to get out of Kosovo and it was getting quite busy on the road, so I wanted to hitchhike towards Macedonia. I was doing lots of mini journeys and then eventually I was given to who seemed to be the guy who speak English. This guy who was incredibly happy to host me. He sort of ran like a sort of a trinket shop. It was one of those shops that seems to sell sort of a towel and also sell like uh, a mug uh, and also like beer and food. But he was lovely and he was, you know, he, he showed me photos of him uh, and British and American soldiers. He stopped a lorry going to Macedonia and he insisted that we, we wave a British and Gosman flag, you know, make some sort of public vow to have good relations between our two countries. Kosovo, kind of like Albania, you know, lonely reputation, but lovely people. From Kosovo, he hitchhiked into Macedonia, crossed Galicia National Park, walking hut to hut above Europe's oldest lakes, Orid and Prespa, sparkling blue far below. He writes, This is why you go hiking, I thought to myself. A state of ecstasy. Only through hiking, through making an effort and undertaking a challenge, can you reap such rewards. But then again, that shadow, those ghosts, still appeared. Tens of thousands died in these ragged mountains, he writes, over the course of various wars during the 20th century. It all seems so serene, yet the violent hand of man and the scars of war were given away by strange bumps or craters on the ground's surface. 
And then it was on to Bulgaria, over the Rila Mountains, where most travelers never go, past storms and waterfalls, over snow-covered peaks and sun-dappled lakes, to the Rila Monastery and a highlight of the trip. The day of getting to this monastery, it was very, very cloudy. My visibility kind of kept on going down and down and down. It started snowing and kind of howling. I had been using the sort of winter pole markers, but the visibility got so low that I couldn't actually see them. And I was aware as well from looking at the map that it was quite steep and that there were drops. I was just going very, very slowly. But I you know, kept on going and I sort of, you know, I ended up at a monastery, this really monastery, uh, we're quite one of Bulgaria's most famous sites. It was quite funny. I like, sort of, I had sort of, you know, I came off the mountain uh, quite bedraggled, um, sort of sweaty, probably a bit smelly. And then it was towards the end of the day, but it was uh, the last batch of coach trippers uh, were just going into the monastery. The people were sort of looking with their sort of cannon cameras around their neck and their sort of day trip trainers. Who, who is this guy? But you know, really, monastery is great. It was. Yeah, in some ways, I was sort of maybe I was harking to one of its original functions in terms of being a place that hosts those in need. And I had to I had to request being hosted there. I had to sort of sign a form and seek God's kindness uh, and assistance. You know, I'm very much not Christian, so I had better tell them that. It's a stunning, ornate, orthodox monastery, and it's beautiful in itself. But also, it's in this location uh, nestled among the mountains. In the day, it was lovely, but it was busy. And then, you know, I was lucky because it seemed like I was the only person, apart from the monks, staying there that evening. So, you know, once the coach trip was gone, I always had the place to myself. And it was just incredibly sort of peaceful and calm and serene. A bit, a bit unsettling because only people, it was me and the, and the monks. They were sort of clad in these very big robes, very dark, and they sort of... They'd walk solemnly, very slow down the corridors. So slightly on edge. I was slightly wary of a sort of mid-evening conversion attempt on me. But yeah, it was lovely. I was sort of lulled to sleep. These sort of occasional sounds of monks sort of praying or singing. It's great. The Rila Monastery is, well, if you could imagine a cross between St. Peter's Basilica and a candy cane house, then you're basically there. And if that sounds strange, what's even stranger is that it totally works. It's stunning. And to spend the night there, not a coach tripper in sight, listening to the sounds of the monks chanting and their soft steps through those ancient cloisters, surely beat the hell out of camping with bears and smelly mountain huts. So he was nearing the end of the journey now. After leaving the monastery, they didn't manage to convert him, by the way, if you're interested. He crossed into Greece, not strictly speaking part of the Balkans anymore, but the tip of that Balkan peninsula and a fitting end to his trip, making his way from there slowly down to the Turkish border in the northeast of the country. But first, he had to get through the Daida forest. So towards the end, I felt, like I felt a bit, you know, a bit more self-confident. I could feel myself being stronger. I thought I had more of a sort of intuition about things like direction, about how far my body could take, you know, what my body could do and when to pause and when to keep on going. But in, you know, in some ways, the deer forest put me back in my place. I wanted to go through it because it was very different. And it was, you know, it was a lovely few days for the most part. I managed to use my hammock for the first time. I've been carrying around for hundreds of kilometers for no good reason. But I managed to kind of to use it. I did some amazing world swimming. I saw it, it's signed towards its reservoir. That was just, it was just incredible because it was so conducive to swimming. And it was just surrounded by these hills. They were all 
forested and it was you know if there was a road towards it it would be hugely popular um, and justly so but there was no infrastructure there so I ended up actually swimming sort of nude flailing around an ecstasy uh, in this reservoir and it was it was very special but I mean towards the edge of the forest it, it, it was very 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 hot it had always been quite hot uh, in the forest but it, it was particularly hot that day and I, I reckoned it would be you know maybe eight hours walking that day so the forest would be hard but you know it'd been all right basically the the, the paths weren't happening the way I thought they would happen it was really hot I was really lacking in water and there were no obvious water sources I'd run out of the water purifiers I, I basically ended up being in a bit of a, a delirious daze I saw things that even now I'm not actually sure if they were real I'm convinced I saw a kangaroo. You didn't. I'm just going to come right out there and say it. If you type into Google, are there kangaroos in Greece, the internet basically just laughs at you. But heat stroke, that isn't so funny. And hallucinations, why he would choose a kangaroo, I have no idea, are a symptom that your brain is basically frying. So it was serious. It was tough. You know, I was dehydrated. I was not as far as I thought I should have been. I ended up getting myself sort of 25 minutes walking five minutes to a pause. I was not on a path, I was just walking through, um, going from tree to tree, fastly, so I was having to take my bag off again. I, I ended up walking a hell of a distance. I never walked so far as I did that day. I was completely shattered, but funny enough, I was still really picky about where I was going to sleep. Because actually, I ended up being the last night of walking. I wanted to have a good good spot. I wanted to you know, not be near a road, not be near, like I say, a farmer, farmer's house. It was a beautiful evening, so I wanted to face the sunset. So I, I ended up kind of walking for kilometres, kilometres, finding a good spot. As I had my my very basic sort of spaghetti tomato sauce, and the sort of sun was setting in front of me, I allowed myself a bit of self-satisfaction, being like, yeah, you know, that was that was difficult. Came through it. You know, now having this luxury of just sleeping in a random field in Greece. I didn't have to put a tent up. It was actually quite a warm evening. Very clear evening as well, so I managed to see it under, the, under the stars, and yeah, I felt a bit of a bit of satisfaction, but also as if it was worthwhile. I sort of I learned something about the my inner capacities, and nothing unique about me. We, we have huge reservoirs of strength, but it, the onus is on us to draw upon them. And maybe that's the point of an agoge to find those huge reservoirs of strength to learn how to draw upon them. He quotes Samuel Smiles, one of the first ever self-help authors pioneering that genre when everyone else in 19th century Great Britain was busy stiffing their upper lip. He said, It is not ease, but effort, not facility, but difficulty that makes men. They reveal to us our powers and call forth our energies. Without the necessity of encountering difficulty, life might be easier, but men would be worth less. I think even a Spartan would be proud of that. I went into it not really knowing what to expect. I thought it wasn't, I was looking for this kind of this challenge and understanding about myself and also the context in which I was in. But I wasn't kind of looking for a specified outcome. But you know, it did. It clarified my view of of, of travelling as being something which is really precious, and also it's something which we need to. It's up to us to make the most out of it in terms of both where we decide to go, but also how we decide to go. The travelling that we do, the holidays we do, are really precious and can be quite life-defining. The mind cannot carry away all that the mountain has to give. 
I'm going heavy on the quotes here, by the way, because I love the wisdom that Adam has found and put into the book. So here we go. One from the legendary nature writer Nan Shepard. The mind cannot carry away all that the mountain has to give, nor does it always believe possible what it has carried away. The travel we choose should give us something of that feeling. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with sitting on a beach, sipping cocktails. It's one of my favorite things to do, actually. But it shouldn't be all we do because the mountains do have a lot to give us and we cannot imagine what those things are until we climb them, until we push ourselves, until we set out on our own agoge. And perhaps, and I'm a firm believer in this, it's not just the mountains or the natural world that is important. It's also how we move through it. Here's another quote from the book, which I love. Never did I think so much, exist so vividly and experience so much. Never have I been so much myself as in the journeys I have taken alone and on foot. There is something about walking which stimulates and enlivens my thoughts. That quote was from Rousseau, the, the writer and philosopher. And it was just, just the power of walking to, to sort of stimulate the mind. It can really get your mind going and buzzing in a way that I would argue other physical activities can't, such as perhaps cycling or perhaps running. It's, it really is just you in, in your body. Uh, and walking is so is really distinctive to the sort of human species. It really kind of marks us out. And, you know, walking is, it, it's slower. Uh, you're more able to take things in. Uh, you're, you're a figure of interest to people who do encounter you, especially if you're walking in, in a region where there aren't many walkers. And with walking, you can have sort of sudden epiphanies about, you know, your own life, about your own, your own goals in the future, about what matters to you. And that can, happen, it can especially happen when you're alone. There's nothing about walking alone, it's quite powerful. You aren't, you know, if you're with someone, you're tied to an extent to them and you're tied emotionally back to home. Whereas if you're walking, especially in this part of the world, you think about possible paths you can forge for yourself which aren't defined by the happenstance of your circumstances. Also, I think walking is something that the tradition that humans have that we can lose in the modern world, which is you know, demands instant gratification, demands of speed, demands getting from value, a valuable place A to valuable place B in the quickest way possible. Walking is a defiance against that. And, you know, you often with walks, you do remember getting to the top to that amazing lookout. But part of intrinsic to getting to that top there is the slow grind of getting there. Walking is a defiance against the modern world, a defiance against its instant gratification, its pace, its focus on the end goal, its disregard for the journey, the effort, the difficulty, the slow grind, which has as much or more to teach us than the summit itself. And perhaps the Balkans have something to teach us too. There's so much to the Balkans in terms of, and you can look at that on different levels, you can look at it in terms of its people. You know, they were incredibly kind and generous and keen to help out and you know the the culture as well the islamic influence the sort of the christian influence it's you know really it really makes you think about what europe is and redefines your conception of europe and also i think that the nature is just it's just incredible 
It would rival lots of spots in, in Western Europe. The beauty, the sort of the awesomeness, the variety. And also importantly, it has the sort of the sparseness and it's it's been untainted by by humans really and modern culture. Go for yourself, see for yourself, choose for yourself the places you want to explore. Accept that challenge, welcome that challenge, that agoge, whatever it may be in your life. Walking 300 miles across a forgotten part of Europe or just walking into your own possibilities, your own life that you dare to live. Or maybe Dolly Parton said it best, who he also quotes in the book, never get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for sharing this adventure with us and the wisdom that you learned along the way. The book he wrote about it is called A Balkan Journey, a 500-kilometer walk through Europe's forgotten region. It's available on Kindle. It's a quick listen, but it's filled with a lot of depth and history and inspiration. I think you'll really like it. I did. His Twitter is Adam J. Selden. His Instagram is adam.j.selden. I'll be sharing images from his trip over the next week, so please do remember to connect with me there as well, Armchair Explorer Podcast. And please also remember to tell a friend, leave that review. All those things make a huge difference and are a great way to support the show. Thank you for anything that you can do. I also want to give a big shout out to my man Ladler, who did the audio engineering and sound design on this episode. I'm really excited to be working with him. He's an amazing musician and up and coming producer. He writes awesome tunes and he is hilarious. You have to go check out his Instagram and his TikTok. He cracks me up. He posts all these hilarious, amazing kind of music inspired videos, which I know you're going to love. He's blowing up and I know you're going to love it too. So his Instagram is at Ladler. That's L-A-D-L-E-R. And his TikTok is the same, at Ladler. Go and check it out. And thank you, Ladler, for doing such an awesome job on this episode. So keep being inspired, keep exploring, keep letting the mountains fill your mind with possibilities. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.